It's just after 6 o'clock and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. Ah, it is good to be back, you know. I took a little vacation. Uh, I was exhausted, as as they say, and I I just wanted to publicly thank uh, our dear friend Andrea Salenzi for for filling in. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Ben. Thanks for doing that. Did you have fun? I had a blast. Yeah? It It was an awesome opportunity, and, you know, I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of help from my grandma, from Jim the Poet. From the guy I'm dating, yeah, no, Laura I, Mayer, I still, in. I still, I have to go through the playlist, but it looked like uh, there was a lot of action going on, and we'll have to have you back on. But you know, I did, I did hear some 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 friends that you were you you had come up with this crazy story to cover what? that I was in rehab. No. <laughs> Okay. I told people you were get on your honeymoon, yeah, and yeah. before that, I said you were getting married. Yeah. Well, I feel great now, and you know. I just, I didn't think you'd want people to to know about it. The rehab, all right. Are you better? I'm better. I feel great. I have a really good show today. But thanks again, and let's let's have you back on soon. Thanks. Okay. So we have a great show today, uh, in-studio guest, uh, the journalist and author Alyssa Court, who is the author of a new book, from the new press called Republic of Outsiders, The Power of Amateurs, Dreamers, and Rebels. And Alyssa joins us here. Hey, Alyssa, welcome to WFMU. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad that you came all the way uh, down here. So I think it's fair to say that WFMU is kind of like an institution when it comes to amateurs and dreamers and rebels. And I think there is a lot of this stuff that uh, many of our listeners will, you know, identify with and feel connected to. But um, you even have Alan Bishop and Sublime Frequencies <laughs> yeah. in your in your music chapter. But that said, it seems that the thesis of this book is that while there have always been outsiders in American culture today, the relationship between insider and outsider has changed or evolved. So let, let's start with this. Can you can you? Walk us through this. You're you're in your twenties, right? And you're you know write poetry. You're going to record stores. You're trading mixtapes. What did outsider mean then to you and culturally compared to what it means now? I think there was a stronger ambit for what it meant to be uh, a member of kind of an alternative scene then. Um, I mean, I, I remember the '90s, as you're saying, the the record stores, the art house theaters. There were these clear kind of uh, non-virtual spaces where people met and collided and I mean maybe I'm romanticizing and uh, it was romantic it I was romantic it was actually it was romantic okay and I think now many of these uh, people and groups of aesthetic renegades and mavericks outsiders what have you and and also political renegades and outsiders are meeting virtually so that that's a huge change okay so you're just saying that the the main difference? No, it seems like there's a lot more than the fact that where they're they're coming together, though. Oh yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot that s- sort of cascades off the fact that they're meeting virtually, and okay. some it the speed in which groups are coming together and coalescing, and culture is going from alternative to mainstream has I think I believe it's sped up partially because of uh, the web, mobile technology, et cetera. Um, I also think. What is actually uh, alternative is less clear sometimes, and you have to go further afield to discover it because uh, the whole concept of yeah. selling out has, I, I said, it has been retired. It's 
paradoxes collapsing into themselves. So when we don't have that concept of sell out or not sell out anymore, that, that that opposition, I think it becomes really complicated for what is alternative and what's not, what's outside and what's inside. Of course. And you say that the duality between inside and outside is what you know, is one of the things that has changed that prompts you to, to spend, I mean, years here working on this. But yes. can you just, before we dive into some of these communities, I'm just curious from the outset, if you could sort of just spell this out. Like, what what do you feel if you had to sort of give the, 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 the message here about what's different about the duality between these two? One of the things I, I was seeing was, I mean, we're all seeing is a lot of institutions are not functioning in the ways that they once did. So, um, you know, everything from your health insurance plan to your retirement funds to your uh, to your banks to your uh, yeah to your record label <laughs> even <laughs> your favorite record labels are not necessarily functioning the way they once did and had the kind of institutional clarity and even like lack of corruption. Um, so I think there's a lot uh, there's a lot of there's breakdowns of traditional structures, established structures, and outsiders as they exist, the ones that haven't so called sold out, are the ones who are kind of growing in the cracks and the crevices of where these institutions have failed us and trying to create functional ones of their own. Okay. And we're, we're, we're going to come to that in the hour here. But I want to start, you know, I think the, the, just the very label outsider. You know, we have outsider art fairs here in New York every year. We have outsider music. And these are brands that, you know, that, that attract mainstream press and mainstream audience and mainstream attention. But what I love about this book is that you remind us in chapter one that real outsiders are kind of baffling and scary to the mainstream. And you introduce us to some outsiders who are redefining what it even means to be sane. And, you know, I really like that this is where you start. So could you you tell us about, I guess, the Mad Pride Movement or the Icarus Mental Health Project and what they taught you about this new outsider mentality? Okay, so I met my first Mad Prider think it was back it was either 2006 or 2007 at a at a feminist bookstore in downtown Manhattan and pretty soon he was showing me an Icarus tattoo on his back and telling me that he was going to reframe mental health and uh, that he was doing so it would not he was going to he was doing so and he was he saw uh, mental illness as a dangerous gift and as a you know intrepid <laughs> I don't know what I am but a, a voyager into these zones I, I had to know more and and I really wanted I was interested he he was questioning traditional diagnoses right, left and right and I was like okay what, what is this about so I kind of followed this movement they were called the Icarus Project uh, but they're part of a broader movement uh, recovery movement which has existed since the 60s but this particular strand of it is sort of influenced by disability rights stuff and so they see themselves as trying to say, look, what is madness exactly? You know, how is it always terrible? Is it always terrible to be depressed? What, what do these diagnoses mean? Should we be institutionalized when, we, when we're going through them? Or should we be trying to seek solace in one another? And uh, so if you could talk a little bit more about some of the concrete things. That say, so the Icarus Project, mm-hmm. that, that where they started in 2002. Mm-hmm. And it seemed it came out of a very personal experience for, for one of the uh, individuals you met. Yeah, it was actually, there was t- it was co-founded by Sasha De Brule, who b- will be on later this hour, and then uh, this woman named Jax McNamara, and uh, Jax and Sasha had both had uh, extreme, they call it extreme mental states, so l- like not always mental illness, like they but they got extremely dystopic and disturbed, and they couldn't 
they couldn't take care of themselves at various points in their lives. And Jax, for instance, was hospitalized, um, and she watched the ball fall from uh, for the millennium, the New Year's, in this dreary patient's lounge in like a gray bathrobe. And it was really not a fun experience. And she said this, she was 19 years old. She'd gone to Brown University. And she's like, is this going to be the rest of my life? And then when she met Sasha, they, they said, well, let's create this movement together where we're going to ensure that this is not the rest of our lives. Yeah. And it seems that they've, you know, really resonated with, you know, not just young people, but uh, lots of people who are questioning what the institution, our mental health institutions and practices are. But you have this stat where just that really blew my mind in that the number of diagnoses of, of those suffering from, say, depression has just skyrocketed. And in a way that the curing rates have not have dropped even though we have these cocktails of medications that are more and more common fabric, uh, common to everyday life. I mean, the number of people that are on prescription drugs to deal with mental illnesses or, or ailments is, is insane. So I feel in, in light of a stat like that, that uh, it's, it's almost like a justification for why, you know, why not something like this? Or, 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 or it seems that there's a lot of people questioning that, again, that the mental health institutions failings are this is perhaps a not just an alternative but you know one that might offer some success well yeah i mean you have 40 almost like 45 million american adults living with mental illness i, I don't know exactly how they're defining mental illness but some kind of extreme state let's put it that way and you have uh, a chunk of them almost 5 million who say they're not getting the services they need and half of that number uh due to uh they don't have enough money to pay for the their health care. So it's not even like uh, the failure of these medications, which can sometimes fail and sometimes yeah. succeed, but it's also people who can't even access the medications. <laughs> so that these groups are necessary, I mean, I, I think in, in uh, concert with more expert care, um, which within the Icarus Project and Mad Pride itself, people have a lot of different reactions to. Some of them want to not see psychiatrists, some of them want to see shrinks, some of them want to take meds. So they call themselves pro-choice, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it seems that this is what's scary and what's a a danger here that you point out, you know, uh, that uh, some of these uh, denying or or pushing back against the experts can lead to death in in some. It is perhaps dangerous to, or there are those who say, it is dangerous to promote attitudes like this towards yeah, mental illness. Yeah, I mean, and, and we, we all think about Scientology and its anti-psychiatric stance and, you know, the snicker, perhaps. Uh, so, th- you know, it's a contoured ar- ar- argument. Um, but in the end of the day, I, I mean, I think the potential risks are outweighed by the fact that, as I said, many people are not getting services at all. So. Yeah. You know, it just talk about some of the things that they've done coming together, just using something like YouTube. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They use YouTube. They were transmitting their therapy sessions at one point. But I think more to point, it's like just this online community. There's 15,000 of them now and they meet up. And I had a a piece of this book came out in O Magazine. Talk about inside outside combinations. (laughs) And uh, after that, they've been just besieged by people wanting to start chapters all around the country. And I'm getting emails from people who are suffering from extreme states. They're like, hey, I'm in the middle of Georgia. You know, I want to start a group. Yeah, but again, can you talk about what's going on in these sessions? Like, oh. what are they, how are they using YouTube? Oh, well, 
YouTube, you know, that was just a, a couple one-offs. I wouldn't say YouTube is the primary okay. thing. I'd say it's mostly, you know, it's the web. They're they're creating chats. They're creating virtual communities that they they check in on each other. They say, oh. how are you doing? Yeah, you know, and they're honest. They have a gallows humor. They're like, you know, I haven't gotten out of bed. Ha ha. How many times have you not gotten out of bed? You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, what I love about it is, again, it's back to that romanticism. Yeah. There is, it, I guess you could say it's grandiose and scary for some, but it's also just, you know, Blackly comic, which is a lot more interesting in certain ways than just your average self-help. Sure, sure. And 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 you know we're so used to you know starting the conversation with say some like outsider musicians or or someone you know bucking their label like Amanda Palmer and using the internet or technology. And I love that you start with this with this issue of of the the mad priders using technology to form communities but in a way there are similarities though what, what for you are sort of the crossovers what for some would say like musicians using right. technology in this group of outsiders so okay when i started thinking about this book i was i was trying to get you know everybody for, i was looking at all sorts of case studies i was like is justin verner from bonavera outsider you know is amanda palmer an outsider is the C cd baby an outsider uh you know an animal collective at one point i was trailing broken social scene i was like are they outside are they like, nah um and uh, you know i just was trying to find like a like could I argue that kill rock stars and traditionally, you know, mm -hmm. really great indie labels are still outsiders? And in a way they are. But what interested me was, as I was saying, like this mad pride element that uh, dis I, they, it's this terrible word that people use, but it's, it explains as well disintermediation. Uh, yeah. So that's when you're decoupling or you're uh, not, no longer using a middleman to communicate or to provide services so that was the link so the link for me then that that just became the organizing principle and so instead of uh just cool indie labels i was looking at people who were particularly using new strategies to reach their audiences that were not depending on traditional institutions so and that's how that was the link between say amanda palmer and uh the people in the Mad Pride movement. Okay. Well, you have this great scene in your book about a Burning Man type festival that takes place in Vermont in like the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. yeah. The point being that outsiders have always been central to the American condition. But so, what is it that's changing now? Is it these new strategies or new technologies? So I think it's the new technologies. But as I said, I think some of it's the speed of the transformation. So you have. So part of why I started with the radical examples, Icarus, uh, some neurodiverse activists, autistic activists uh, arguing for the value of their different wiring in a, in a world that would rather cure them, uh, or trans feminists, gender activists. And so truly r radical groups and didn't start with like, you know, our, our favorite cool indie labels or what have you, is I was interested in what hadn't uh, quickly been assimilated yeah. um, because one of the problems is now you know that Rutland Vermont uh, festival that I, I wrote about from the from the middle of the 19th century abolition starts in the American Revolution and it takes 80 years for it to be you know become incorporated yeah, into yeah. the American fabric you know it takes the Civil War you know um, for it to really be uh, f fully assimilated I mean that's like a really radical example but there are plenty of others uh, in in American history that that took 50, 60 years, and so I was looking for things that wouldn't take one hour <laughs> to <laughs> to be a, you know mainstreamed. 
Ah, uh, wow. You know, and, and it's also there's a contradictory forces within some of the outsider organizations themselves. I mean, the mental health uh, stories, the autism chapter and the, the, the Mad Pride chapter, I mean, there are clearly different viewpoints, uh, person, people with different uh, goals. But I think the best story that illustrates this is the animal rights meet activists that you talk about because you you do want to point out just how much some of the ideas are being assimilated but at the same time the community has there are those with really distinct goals from animal rights lawyers to people who are happy to see vegan projects in uh, Whole Foods. Exactly. So when, when, when I set out to do this, I was talking to the VP of Whole Foods, and I was like, well, I'm sure there's many VPs, one VP there, of Whole Foods. There are many. There, yeah, Morgan Stanley and Whole Foods, all they have is VPs. <laughs> but um, so I was like, so, okay, this lobster is well-treated. Is this is this animal rights? You know, that, like now we're being told that this meat product is in, in, in good hands. You know, I, I, is this is this really what animal rights radicals meant and is this really the cutting edge so again i was yeah. putting it to my like you know harsh scrutiny are they you know who here is a sellout and who's not um and what i saw was a real spectrum uh i saw people indeed there's uh this wonderful product by this guy david lee it was like a grain meat so i went to this sort of fake it's vegetoir an abattoir for you know ve- grain based uh faux meat products and and then I went and met an animal rights lawyer who was you know ca- talks about animals being uh, non-human animals because he wants to indicate that humans and animals are not as mm-hmm. distinct as we think and intellectually that is a really radical idea. And then I went and met you know scientists who were trying to create animal you know fake meat in labs, yeah. which even. I started reporting that in 2008, and now that has become a mainstream yeah. idea. And so this is, again, where I'm saying everything's speeding up. I mean, you know, you see Google, you know, Sergey Brin investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in fake meat now. And you see, you know, taste testing sirloin, fake sirloin burgers. So this was ick. You know, when I told people yeah. about it in 2008, they're like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> is this Solian Green? Is this Frankenstein? Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I was like, don't you, don't you want to know about this trip I was on? They're like, no, no, don't tell me. <laughs> And now, but yeah. but it's a, it's it's uh, uh, fast, but it's within this project that you've been working on. You talk mm-hmm. about 2008 when you know Ick, you were working on this story. Mm-hmm. So you know, seeing sort of from that point Ick to like now where it's almost mainstream. So, so this is something that's been on the outside that's been mainstream. Like sort of following that, what do you feel you can tell us about sort of like ideas on the outside sort of moving in? Because uh, you know, it's sure I, I get it that it's fast, but at the same time, it seems that there are those who feel, well, wait, my idea was in the animal rights that feel that no it's not over where are those that feel that oh, this is great right. like the struggle's over well it's hard to say i mean i think there's um to some extent it's there's there's uh i don't know how you'd put it granularity within movements where things are there's e- more easily and this is always true actually more easily assimilated components of any mo- movement yeah. and then less easily assimilated components so you, you know the radical uh, animal rights uh, activists i spoke to who had been in prison um you know, who cried, literally cried over a field mouse um, dying. Uh, you know, he's not going to just be like, oh, great, fate, you know, like they're not hurting sirloin at, you know, They have Whole better Foods. cages at yeah, Whole Foods. Yeah, that's not going to be enough. So, so is that the equivalent of selling out then? Sort of like th- that uh, you have activists sort of seeing that uh, the mainstreaming is still kind of connecting back to those older ideas that we had in, in of selling yeah. or is, is that... 
Well, what, what, are the, it. what are the terms I c- came up with is self-cooptation. Yes, and, I love that. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Because I sort of started to, I mean, that was one of the ways I was understanding the selling out, not selling out break that we're talking about. Uh, you know, I, I, I think people have always, you know, I mean, Tom Frank wrote about this. So there's been a lot of people mm-hmm. written about the process of the conquest of cool or commodification of cool. But uh Self-co-opting to me is a new horizon line where people uh, on, in some of these alternative groups or outsider groups understand what it takes to be sucked into a meme and to go viral or to mainstream. They understand what it takes. And so they kind of create language that can be assimilated and ideas and images. And that's part of what you're seeing. It, that was part of what I was seeing in the case study of uh, the animal rights yeah. movement. Yeah, but let's 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 back up a bit here because you wrote an earlier book before this called Branded, and, and it seems that this the topic of that book was looking at how young people were resisting, you know, the commercialization of everything. And it seems, you know, coming to this, uh, I'm curious about what sort of turned some of the ideas you learned there on its head. Because again, talking about this sort of self-co-opting behavior, I mean that's. Y- you give it another name. You call it cultural entrepreneurship. I mean, which sort of, I think, is 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 perhaps even uh, a more positive look spin on uh, not a rejection of the like diving in head first with new strategy. Or are they new strategies? Oh, uh, you know, they're they're not entirely. I mean, nothing's new. Uh, but it's, what's new again is the the. Uh, aptitude of some of these groups uh, to to sort of come up with f- framings. Like, mm-hmm. look at something like neurodiversity. That's like a really great s- sort of word that catches the eye and this whole idea that there are people who aren't uh, on the autistic spectrum or on the, on the spectrum are... Um, you know, neurotypical. I mean, these are li- having these lang- this language circulating is powerful. Uh-huh. And uh, so I think the, the value of new language and new phrases and getting them to circulate. A lot of this, again, has to do with the web and search optimization <laughs> and language that, it, you know, can can move around quickly and, and is meaningful. And uh, I think that that, yeah, so that, that that's, that's a big uh, shift. But then the cultural entrepreneurship piece, um, I just was noticing that a lot of people were sort of selling alternative ideas. The people yeah. that I was meeting and I was that I found incredibly appealing that could sometimes be really out there were still understood that they had to, if not make something palatable, they had to have something that could be uh, quickly understood uh, by people, almost like could that idea that was consumable. And that did fit back into my first book, Branded. But even more to the point, I had a concept in Branded, well, two concepts, self-branding and unbranding. And... The unbranding part of this was I sort of wanted to part of why I wanted to write this book to begin with was I wanted to follow that unbranding concept to its logical conclusion and see what happened to yeah. those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I, right. I, I, this is where the, the one skepticism here. But I just want to quickly sit, t- say that you know we're talking with Alyssa Court, uh, who is the, a journalist and author of the new book, uh, The Republic of Outsiders, The Power of Amateurs, Dreamers, and Rebels from New Press. I've got a link uh, to the book on the TMI playlist page, and we have an ACU playlist going as well at WFMU.org. I just want to say that so I feel that this, this idea of, of having it both way, of being an outsider but being able to commercially market your outsider ideas on the inside, uh, 
there's the, sure I can I, I, I can sometimes be pulled in and see how it works but the, sometimes I just want to throw up my hands and be like this is wait this is not it can't work this way what wait what can't it just seems that there are contradictory ideas Wh- which are that are that participate participating by being on the outside but yet being able to commercially market your outside ideas seems to sort of miss the whole point of uh, in other words maybe there's just like a romantic side of me that 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 wants to hold on to the the resistance part of outsider culture yeah well i definitely do but look where that's getting (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i I, this is a lot of it's generational also i mean i feel like i'm just old is that what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i you know i I mean this is something i i didn't really get into in this book but i grew up (laughs) in the 70s in a you know pretty leftist household and that that, you know there's a lot of repugnance at this idea of selling yourself right and uh but i see that there's a certain defeatism in that and one of the things that is interesting is how these groups have managed to not fall prey to the the repugnance of, of yeah. marketing well there's a, i want to s- quote someone that in your book here now you ha- you talked to alan bishop who is that who runs the sublime frequencies label which you know is a big wfmu uh, staple here. We play a lot of that. And uh, I would put him in that category, and you kind of do too, is sort of very different from like the Amanda Palmer's of sort of you. But he says this great line. He says, I want to turn other people onto the things I like rather than the things other people like for the world to be influenced by what I personally like. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, but I mean, again. Is this identity innovation? I mean. Yeah. That, I, I, that is identity innovation. And uh, one of the one of the things the web's given us, uh, people have written about this, is that everybody's a curator now, for better or worse. Um, uh, maybe some of them are makers, but a lot of them are curators. And that, when when things when outsider culture is functioning well now, it's people are curating unusual things in unusual ways and disseminating them in ways they never mm-hmm. could before. Um, yeah, and you t- you talk about the DIY maker culture movement in here, and again, like this is perhaps. Uh, com- on the opposite side of what uh, Alan just said, but perhaps they it, maybe they connect more, and I'm just not seeing it. But it seems that the maker culture is really uh, with you know Etsy stores to the maker fairs, and you you go into this a lot. Um, what are what is being gained by sort of trying you know this group going mainstream? Like how are they going mainstream in a way that that perhaps solves some of the problems that that were you know another generational wouldn't have been able to. Well, the, a lot of the crafters that I yeah. talked to were solving it by literally setting up shop and selling their wares. And if they want the world to be buying differently and making differently and living differently, they're they're giving them very concrete ways to do that. So, you know, here's the underwear that's not made in Bangladesh. And, you know, here's the, the bed that's not made by oppressed w- workers, you know, in the U.S. even. And so they're you know exactly where everything comes from. That's that's sure, the, that's sure, their sure. ideal. And that has its own, you know, I try to get at the nuances and everything. Like there's arguments that the people who were working at Etsy, you know, the people at the storefronts really are not making that much money and they're not really able to support themselves. And it's mo- a lot of them are women. And so there's there's issues even within that, you know, uh, within the sort of cultural entrepreneurship at work within craft culture. So there's an idea that you reference a lot, um, this this concept of the counter public. Can you tell us about this, where it comes from, and how it helps us understand what the new outsider is all about? Well, counter public is, uh, I mean, it's, I don't mean to be fancy, but it all starts with, like, 
German philosophy. Okay. German philosophy. Okay. Like Habermas and German philosophy. We have time. We have 25 um, minutes. <laughs> but uh, what, you know, the, the direct way that I got this was from the theorist Michael Warner. And uh, he uses the, the term is sort of used to describe people who try to transform things through text. So the web is a really big space for the counter public idea, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of what we're a lot of the alternative viewpoints that we're getting online are, are written. I mean, some are images, but they're written. Um, I say the notion of the public is a social fiction, and counterpublics like the Mad Priders carve out separate spaces through writing in particular, through a strong message that people in the broader p- public may not have heard before and that could potentially change and shape minds. So that's the, that's the sort of ideal there, that there's a, there's a public which is nor- normal-ish, <laughs> and then there's counterpublics that are c- using text to coalesce and uh, get their message out and are in in some state of opposition to the broader public. Yeah. So the text, you know, the, the web, the Internet is what so many of these groups are using. And, you know, from the mental health uh, folks in the first chapter to, of course, the Etsy stores and even the the. Uh, the animal rights activists and, you know, and musicians, but for, for you, when you look at technology and how all the, like, what is what what are the main similarities and how like are they using it to just find a place to come together? Is that is it that simple or or what, how would you explain like what the main benefits are of using technology or how they all use it in a similar way? Well, yeah, I think it's to come together. I think it's to define their ideas in public, uh, in both public and private, if that makes any sense. So they're, you know, as a group, but then to get it, kind of get a collective uh, definition out as well. Uh, you know, just not to be so isolated, too. I mean, I think that's that that's something that has sort of slowed down a lot of movements. Yeah. You have people and, you know, isolated people in various places uh, who don't know that there are even people like them. Yeah. Well, let, let's come back to media then, because I think that, you know, when it, when it comes to the marrying of media and technology is where we see so much. And in fact, you know, if we're going to talk about outsiders, most of us would assume that's where it would start with his conversations about art and music. But this phrase of like this idea of the self-co-opting, um, it seems like that's where someone like Amanda Palmer, like is a really, you know, someone who's decided to co-opt <laughs> herself. God, ben- Benjamin, <laughs> you have your own agenda. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I... I no, I mean that is a compliment. I yeah. mean, I mean, no, I'm, I, I, it seems like that she's, you know, she's. Is that a fair way to? Th- yeah, yeah. I mean, I, she, or maybe let's say maybe she didn't even self co-op, but whatever the resulting brouhaha after she raised 1.2 million from Kickstarter and got 5,000 to play shows for fans and then didn't uh, didn't pay her fan musicians, you know, that's. That, that sort of gave it at least an aura of somebody who is self-co-opted and, you know, not um, alternative TM. Yeah. All right. No, we'll move away from her. But there's a guy you talk about in that I did, I was unfamiliar with in uh, cinema uh, or transmedia named Lance Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Wheeler can you yeah. tell us about him? Like maybe that's a different. That's we'll a different kind of thing. A little less uh, loaded example that we can. Yeah, talk I mean, about. I, I, I'm cool with Amanda Palmer. I think that's probably right. Yeah, she's probably self-coopted. I didn't use her as an example of that exactly. I used her, so that's why I was a little thrown <laughs> off. It's not that I disagree, but it's just that I used her as an example of one some of the problems that can arise w- in this new order yeah. where fans and stars are intermeshed, and the outsider, the fan, is 
you know, overlapping with the insider, the ultimate insider, the star, and nobody knows which is which, and it can be lead to exploitation or confusion, right? Yeah, Lance was, um, is, he's a talented filmmaker, but he's just, uh, for years he's been making these really independent films, uh, but he he's just functioning on so many different platforms. There's like videos and cartoons and advertising and posters. I, I couldn't even I keep track. I mean, it was like there's he had dozens of different platforms that were he was producing all his work on and showing it. And he had fil film festivals and he was using a term called transmedia to describe this range of genres mm -hmm. that he was he was doing in that that term comes from um, an academic at, uh, used to be at MIT, um, Henry Jenkins. But, but uh, you know, and it just means multiple genres. <laughs> That's what it really means. But what was interesting to me was how that it sort of overlapped with strategies the, the big Hollywood studios were using. So that was the question where self-cooptation arose for me because I was like, oh, yeah, well, how different is this from action figures, yeah. uh, lunchboxes in the 70s of Star Wars, et cetera, or today where you have, you know, uh, endless games online uh, from Mad Men and you know Banana Republic Mad Men jackets and all that kind of stuff, uh, and and is there is it just a continuum uh, for some kinds of alternative culture like independent film and uh, and Hollywood film and I think I actually think in film particularly it is a continuum. Yeah. I read something recently uh, where Steve Jobs was really impressed with. Uh, what George Lucas did with Star Wars, and that was like what he wanted to do with the Mac. So it was like by having all these people ready to have the toys and the movie, he wanted to have software for the Macintosh. So it was like holding up like the 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 whole Star Wars franchise example is like a business strategy, like moving forward with the Mac. Which again, like I think growing up, sort of seeing Star Wars, you know, being a Star Wars kid, it was like, oh, they're just you know that's separate from the movies. Like, but no, it was it was part of the business. Oh strategy yeah, it was baked from, in, baked yeah. in. And one of the things that's interesting also. I mean, Spike Lee has recently been raising money on Kickstarter. He succeeded. Yeah, he made one, he made his one point two five yeah. million, I think, and then you know Steven Soderbergh gave him ten thousand dollars. So that was like an interesting another. I mean, and then these are yet another paradox in this book was was writing about oh, yeah. insiders who were you know, uh, oh, yeah, right at know, the moment, right. David's and Goliath drag, or Goliath's and David drag. I'm sorry, who were just kind of inverting these identities in the other direction. Yeah, but you know, it's funny that 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 whole debate with like the Veronica Mars one, and then the uh, uh, who's the guy from uh, the TV show that did the Kickstarter? Uh, on the, I can't think of his name. The one who just did the uh, the Garden State guy. Oh, Zach Braff. Yes. Yeah. So his Kickstarter. When people are, I, I actually, it excites me to see people like him and Spike Lee using these mm -hmm. tools because I, I think I that think so too, and I think it's great. I, I mean, I think ultimately. Self-cooptation aside, it's good for viewers. It's just, uh, you know, I wonder how good it's going to be ultimately for, I mean, obviously, I don't know if I care about Hollywood, right? So it's not going to be good for Hollywood. Yeah, but, you know, let's let's talk about another story that's uh, still in the media thing, that you talk about a movie called Margaret. And again, talk about speed. I mean, this is such a good example of just how fast things are going. But uh, if you could just tell the story about, like, why, I'm, I'm curious if you could ex just tell us the story about this movie and what it helps us understand about this new relationship between outsiders and insiders. Well, Margaret is a, fil a film by Kenneth Lonergan, who made a really successful indie film, You Can Count on Me. And he'd been working on this film for a really long time. And I think uh, it had, 
it was shot in 2005 from a script completed in 2003, and it's full of 9-11 illusions, uh, but it only came out, you know, like last year. And the reason for that was the uh, studio that had financed it, and it's I think it's pro- pro- one of its producers, had sort of dumped it and uh, just thought it was a failed work. And it had a, it was incredibly long. There was a director's cut, and then there was a second cut by, uh, I think, Martin, Martin Scorsese's editor. And so it, it, eventually, in 2011, it saw brief runs at two art house theaters at a 150-minute running time version. And there's no advertising. And of course, there's no box office, office receipts. And the film seemed fated to occupy an unfortunate space in our culture, a mainstream work that was demoted (laughs) to a small indie film. Abject and forgettable. But then uh, the bloggers took over, bloggers working with critics. So it was like kind of a a professional amateur link. And they, uh, they, they, they started a petition to get the film seen, uh, and it went viral, and they called themselves Team Margaret, and uh, it became a micro-movement. And, like, this is uh, really unusual because usually you have a film, like, a classic that's been buried by its yeah. studio. I mean, I'm really familiar with film history, right? I mean, every you know, so many different films, and will be resurrected later. And, you know, even films like Vertigo were, you know, financial. Uh, they, they were not seen as successes in some, on some levels. Or, and then, you know, of course, they're seen as classics. And sometimes it's like uh, whatever that great, was it Heaven's Gate? Yep. Uh, and, you know, now it's being reassessed, but it's been 30 years. So what was surprising to me as somebody who's thought a lot about film, I was like, wow, this has taken you know, it was buried in 2011. I mean, the film itself took six or seven years, but, you know, buried in 2011. And then by 2012, it's it's on top top 10 lists, you know, and everybody's talking about it. And it's seen as a strange but valuable film. Uh, and, and, you know, cynically, I'm almost like, okay, is the filmmaker, did he hire an agency <laughs> to make this happen? But there's a, vi- there's a very specific victory here. The critics who s- dismiss this film are like almost forced to go back and actually change their... And they did. They did change their remarks. That's mind-blowing. And then it got on, like, uh, top 100. It became one of the top 100 films on iTunes. Yeah, and it became critically reassessed also, which is, I mean, you know, you think about a 1927 film like Napoleon. uh, You know, MGM bought the rights of the film, and after screening in London, cut it, changing some of its innovations, and gave it a limited release. Uh, But when it was restored in 1981, you know, it was... It's, it was seen as a as a really great and incredibly innovative film. Now I'm not sure Margaret is going to hit those those watermarks exactly, but I, I do I do think it's a really wonderful movie in a lot of ways. So I was, and I was excited by yeah. the whole process. I love I love what you just said that it c- could have been a guerrilla ad campaign. <laughs> you didn't think of that one, did you? I did, man. Uh, I did. No, uh, yeah. You, see, you're, you're I'm too more smart cynical. For me. You're no, too smart for me. I'm just a little more cynical. But uh, uh, no, but the fact that the, the critics actually changed their opinion for me is is for perhaps the most telling. Uh, that that is what says the most about the changing relationship between the insiders and the outsiders. It really shows that they're kind of in charge. If they're basically saying like, how dare you dismiss my favorite movie that I'm a fan of? It's one thing to say like, we're going to make this more people watch it, but to make the official critics change their write-ups, that's 
Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, and also, also for there to be additional screenings and to uh, be reassessed. I think it was it was sent in for award awards and so forth, and it, yeah, it just had a new a, a third and fourth life. Well, we've got a, a few more things I want to I want to get to, but uh, we're talking with Alyssa Court, who is a journalist and the author of the new book, Republic of Outsiders: The Power of Amateurs, Dreamers, and Rebels. You can find a link to the book on the TMI playlist page, and we have an Accu playlist going to. And you have an event. I think you're speaking about the book soon, right? I awesome. am at the Strand on September 10th with Susan Kane, author of Quiet. Cool. So uh, uh, if you want to hear more, you can go check that out. But we have uh, one of the individuals that you that you cover in your book on the phone, and I'm going to try to see if uh, Sasha De Brule is here. Hey, Sasha, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me all right? We can. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Sasha. I'm <laughs> psyched to be here. This is a great conversation. Good, 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 good. So, uh, Sasha, you are, are one of the founders of the Icarus Project. Yeah. Uh, and have you read uh, Alyssa's book? <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I made my way through it. Yeah? And, 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 yeah. and, and, and can you talk about, like, sort of this framework for, for sort of, like, seeing yourself as, as, as part of this republic of outsiders? Is it, uh, what, do, what do you think of that label? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Icarus Project started back in 2002 because I wrote this article in the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And, uh, you know, up until that point, I had always written little zines. I grew up in the punk scene in New York, and, you know, I had this little anarchist punk rock ghetto that, you know, I, I, had, a, I, I had written for. And then suddenly for the first time in my life, thousands of people read yeah. the story that I wrote. And the story was about being... Um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and locked up in psychiatric hospitals. And it just happened to be that the time when it came out, like all of these people resonated with the story that I was telling. And because of the way technology was working right at that time and pe- how people were communicating with each other, um, we ended up starting a website and, and um, you know, ended up with 15,000 people all yeah. talking to each other about their relationship to to their psychiatric diagnoses. So, yeah, we fit in really well, I think, with the, with the, the trajectory of Alyssa's book. I mean, I think the, the thing about our movement is that it has, we're not, like, we don't come at it from the, like, we weren't slick enough to be like, okay, we're going to brand ourselves so that we can <laughs> like, get out into the... Whole know, Foods. Whole Foods is selling vinyl <laughs> records now. You, yeah. you didn't want to make it into Whole Foods. <laughs> No, I mean, in some ways, you know, I think that, I think my friends and I for years have been thinking about the relationship between the underground and the mainstream and and how you, if you get too popular, you end up having to water your message down. We have a very radical message. I mean, if you look at our website, the IcarusProject.net, it's the, the... the message is that we, we want to completely reframe the language and culture of what gets called mental health and mental illness, you know? And and it and I love Alyssa's, you know, stories about all all the people that she, she started to, to write about and then they got too big for <laughs> to fit into the category. You know, that hasn't happened to us because we're pretty radical. But, yeah. I mean, I see the way that we're affecting the culture. You know, the, the there's this kind of larger discussions around mental health that, um, yeah, but that's better than being popular, Sasha. I mean, like that the idea of having an effect on mainstream culture is is obviously the the real goal. I mean, uh, can you talk about some of those things that you've seen that have happened? So, you know, basically, when we started our project, the only language that we had to 
to talk about ourselves with was this language of um, disorder and dysfunction and disease. And, you know, Icarus, the the, the myth of Icarus is the boy who has wings and ends up flying too close to the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And basically when we started our project, we said, rather than seeing ourselves as people who are diseased or disordered, we see ourselves as people who have dangerous gifts, like having wings, you know? And and that's a that's a meme that has resonated with a whole lot of folks. And it's not... And, and of course... It could be taken in all kinds of, you know, it could be used to sell Paxil, you know, like you like you learn to use your dangerous gifts, like take these drugs. But, you know, the what I've seen is a movement that's come out of basically this, you know, there's there's now a whole generation of kids who were raised, um, you know, with with the language of of bipolar disorder and ADHD um, and told that they had biochemical brain imbalances and even though that's the dominant culture that we live in look on the internet you'll see all kinds of amazing discussions happening where people are embracing yeah. their differences embracing their um their diversity their you know their mm-hmm. diverse yeah. abilities hey, you know? and there's these these memes that we use like diverse abilities and we use extreme states rather than psychosis you know we we um uh, and and then we have a relationship with the the mainstream language where the the language you know it's a shorthand that works like yeah, i yeah. you know I, I talk about myself as being bipolar all the time but i don't actually i think that language is going to get washed away and you know into the dustbins of history at some point so sasha you know you mentioned that you come out of the punk rock scene here punk zine scene in new york so i mean i, I want to talk about technology because that's like something we've been talking about when we're talking about you know music film mental health can you just quickly like see for me like what the connect like some of the things that you're doing with the internet with this community that sort of just absolutely connect to you like what first comes to mind with with zine culture I'm sorry, I said with zine culture. Yeah, with just you know. like you, going back to punk zines and like how you're, this movement, the Icarus movement is using the, the web today. Well, it's kind of awesome, right? Because I'm, so at this point I'm an elder, right? I'm 38 <laughs> years old. So I remember <laughs> I grew up before the, I grew up before the internet. But the, like the, for my friends and I, the way that we kept in touch with each other was by writing zines and by, you know, scamming copies of them at Kinko's and, you know, and, and um, leaving them around the country. And, and blog culture just totally ended up. I mean, you're still, there's, there's still people making zines for sure, but the the ability of people to communicate with each other has just like become it's become so easy for people from all over the world to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. And and I guess the if I was going to like highlight a piece that I think is is important about it, you know. When I okay, so when I was in my twenties, I had a I had a column in this magazine called Slug and Lettuce that was printed on cheap newsprint mm-hmm. and went all over the world, um, you know, and 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 went that was it, it went through punk rock networks like you know from Malaysia to Brazil. Um, right. So what, like, what? So one of the things you're seeing, Sasha, is you're seeing networks. Uh, those same networks now, just far quicker, you know, it's far more expedient, but it's a similar ethos. So, I mean, this is part of the counterpublics thing, that you have zines that people were uh. using to, you know, u- right, creating right, communities yeah. around language, and now they're doing it online. 
Sure. And, and, and if we want to talk about selling out, I mean, it's really interesting. So with my generation, you know, when Green Day made it on the cover of Rolling Stone, that was it. You know, we were like, okay, it's over. Yeah. Like that, you know, our culture, like our culture has been sold out. But, of course, what happens then is that for, for all of these, like, people who then end up finding out about punk rock culture through hot topic yeah. stores and shopping malls, then they get these little, you know, they get these little clues that if they dig a little deeper, they end up finding. Totally. And I, and you, it, yeah. yeah, but you I'm not, you, you know, but I think there are certain instances where, you know, that's not going to happen, like something like the, like banking. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, Sa- Sasha, I, I, I want to thank you for, for, for joining us. I've only got a few minutes left, and I want to ask uh, Alyssa about the, right the banking stuff. But thanks for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Sasha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> so, all right, we've got a few minutes left here, Alyssa, but I want to talk about the, the – so as you're working on this book, you see Occupy movement spring up right here in the city that you're working on about outsiders. But there is a story you cover in this book about the Occupy debit card yeah you tell us about this because like this seems like a radical idea at, on the same level as sasha's but like they're trying to go mainstream yeah yeah so w- w- one of the things that uh, occupy happens and again i'm still trying to finish this book <laughs> and i'm like oh no no i have to go hang out at occupy like yet a whole other you know area terrain to cover and everyone's there all the drills are there so i i've, I've quickly found a, a group within it and there you know there are some groups that you know fell away and some that really lasted and the occupy money cooperative is, was one group that i fa- thought was particularly successful and they were trying to create an occupy bank card i mean they're still in process but now they're uh they actually exist now as an occupy money cooperative and the bank card would just have an incredibly low fee and right now, uh, debit cards for the unbanked and underbanked, those are people who don't really have bank accounts or have very, you know, not f- very functional bank accounts, now spend a lot of money on bank cards. They can f- spend fees like $8 a month sometimes. So these people are trying to, like, do a runaround on that and have a prepaid debit card that's really, f- really fairly priced. Uh, and what was interesting to me was they were a lot of them came from financial institutions. They worked at banks. And when I went to a meeting, they were you know, talking yeah. on a really high level. So it, again, in their it was fancy apartment, not really outsiders. Well, they were, but they were making themselves outsiders. Yes. Again, it's with the inside-outside complexity because they were choosing to extricate themselves from whatever fancy financial institutions they were affiliated with. And instead, you know, like I just talked to a guy who in the money cooperative who worked at Deutsche Bank for 16 years. And instead of just following the usual yeah. credo, we're, we're experimenting. And can you talk about what is the product? What is the, 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 card? the card? A little bit more about yeah, it hasn't, how lo- it hasn't launched yet. Exactly. <laughs> so and again, it seems like a radical idea that might not. I mean, there, there are gatekeepers here that are different than, say, the, the Hollywood or the major labels. Yeah, although, you know, the thing is money. It's always money. So the gatekeepers here are people would be that the, the gatekeepers, them having enough money or, you know, being able to get a financial, you know, get a financial institution that's already up and running to you yeah. know, be part of their cooperative. If Kim Kardashian can get a card, <laughs> yeah, debit card going, what 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 obstacles are the are the occupied card facing? I think mostly that these people are working part time because they actually do have day jobs, so they're they're not true outsiders in that sense. Like they are very nicely employed, so they're they they just don't have enough staff. Okay, so we're, we're running up to the end here, um, but I, you know, there's something I've been dying to ask you since I put down the book, and it it seems that there's like a very large question hanging over all of the all of the uh, subcultures or outsiders that you're you're counterpublics that you're covering, and you know you don't really address it head on, but it seems 
that it, it's fair to say that most, a lot of this productive, proactive work that's being done by outsiders is taking place mainly because of a massive failure of many of our public institutions. I'm really curious, like, that question is something that so many people, so many of us, are focused on that we want an answer to. Like, what, and I, I think that you must have a really interesting answer after doing all this work. Like, why are our institutions failing? Well, you know, I don't know if I have an answer about why our institutions yeah. are failing. I mean, I think, greed, you know, all the you, greed, sure, corruption, sure, sure, but you know what I'm, I'm getting at. Officials. Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is they're, they're I mean, too big. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, and, uh, in terms of the sort of psychiatric and uh, neurological institutions, they're too diagnostically dependent, um, which, you know, and they don't have an expansive sense of individuality in that way, like that, which I think a, a lot of these DIY groups I write about, I mean, they, they're by individuals for individuals. Yeah. But it seems like that the, the, the they've all sort of decided that they're not going to try to fix it. They're going to just create a new institution yeah like out of out of desperation often so i mean i i'd like to i i this is a really positive book it's about all these people but i also i mean i wish these institutions were functioning <laughs> properly like i i don't want us to have to depend on uh always have to depend on ourselves and each other only and not have you know structured daycare or banking <laughs> 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 well, I think we're going to leave it at that. Uh, this is a really incredible, important book. I'm so glad you came on the air to talk about it with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's called Republic of Outsiders, The Power of Amateurs, Dreamers, and Rebels. And uh, you can uh, find that at your local bookstore online. There's a link to it on the Aki playlist. And uh, we'll link to some of your upcoming talks, including the one at the Strand on September 10th. 10th. All right. Thanks again, Alyssa. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show.
listening to WFMU. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have in the studio today? Hello, who are you? Uh, Chris. Who are you, Chris? Please explain. Chris from the punk band Gentlemen of Horror. Kelowna's only and greatest punk band. First, First. and only yes. greatest punk band. Could you please explain, yeah. Chris, what did we just hear, and who are the Gentlemen of Horror, who were the Gentlemen of Horror, and where is Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada, for people oh that don't know? God. Okay, you heard Hobby for a Day by The Wall which was one of our favorite bands way back in the olden days, 1980, I think. And uh, Kelowna, B.C. is located in the beautiful Okanagan Valley, about a four-and-a-half-hour drive from Vancouver on the lovely Coquihalla Highway. What are the gentlemen of horror? Please explain. Exactly. What the hell is this all about? Um, Well, we have this new album out, and it's all our recordings we ever did, and demos, and a rehearsal, and live uh, recordings, and we've put it on one record. It's uh, it's out in vinyl and CD, and uh, yeah, it's out on punkrecords.com, and I think it has 31 songs, and uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. You get the whole history of the Gentleman of Horror all three years that we were together. Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. A bit more of information on mm. Kelowna, British mm-hmm. Columbia, Canada. How did you find out about punk in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada? Well, we were... A friend was walking down the street one day. And he was... I think this is when we were 14? 13, 14? And he heard this music coming from this apartment. So he went up and knocked on the door because he went, Well, that's... What is that? It's like punk rock coming out of there. No one in this town plays that. And uh, this crazy guy answered the door. He was about 25 years old, shaved head, tattoos, scars, interesting character. And he's uh, from Scotland. And uh, my friend goes, well, what are you doing? What, what are you playing? He goes, oh, playing all that. This is how he, I'm trying to do the imitation of him. Uh, yeah, come on in. Yeah, I was playing this music. Yeah. And he, so that's, we, uh, he introduced us to bands like Crass and... Uh, I think Dead Kennedys, and uh, we were just like, this is the craziest thing. This is Kelowna in 1979. What is this guy doing here? It was insane. So next thing you know, we formed a band. So it was uh, my friend Kevin, my brother Tom, me, and this guy Chuck, and he was the singer. So it was a 12-year-old kid, two 14-year-old kids, and a 25-year-old singer. And, and, uh, yeah, and we were called uh, Kill Pigs. How did he end up in Kelowna, British Columbia? You know, I don't remember how he ended up there, but he he would work half the year on the oil rigs and then come back to Kelowna and basically party all the money away the rest of the year. So that's what he'd do. And then he, he made us practice every day. So we were in high school, and we'd go over every single day. And uh, practice because if you didn't, he'd uh, he'd get really pissed off. So he's like, okay. So we were pretty tight, and we wrote about f- forty original songs, and uh, which we, is incredible. Uh, yeah, and we played once, and then we were going to do an album. So it was going to be the first, you know, punk album out of Vancouver, and uh, we didn't hear from him. And then uh, he the we, first it, punk album out of Vancouver. Oh, sorry, out of Kelowna. It would have been the first out of Kelowna. And, uh, yeah, and then so he, he got killed. So that, that was the end of the Kill Pigs. So out of that, we uh, formed Gentlemen of Horror. Oh, that's horrible. How did he die? Oil rig accident. 
And he was from Scotland originally. Yeah, yeah. Is that where he found out about punk rock? I think so. And then he, he brought over these records with him. And he's like, you know. And then he'd occasionally go back and he'd bring over more records. And we're just like, this is the greatest stuff ever. And that, that really, really, I mean, that's when I fully got into it. So that was like 79, I guess. And uh, yeah, he, was up no- he went up north again to make money to pay for the record. That's why he went up north. So he was making money to pay for the album so we could record. And uh, yeah, something happened on the... Oil rig 